The Kremlin announces its offensive plan for Ukraine in every sense of the word offensive. The lead starts right now. A Russian general reveals Putin wants full control of southern Ukraine, and to do that, they need to seize Ukrainian cities such as Odessa and Mariupol. This as we learn what it was like inside a Ukrainian village held hostage by Russian troops for more than a month. Then, they are the lucky ones, the few able to escape the horror and bombardment happening in Mariupol. We're going to talk to them as they arrive in the relative safety of western Ukraine. Plus, planes, trains, automobiles, and mass confusion. CNN took an Uber, an Amtrak, and a flight to see what the mask reality was on public transportation. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with the world lead. And for the first time, Russia is revealing the goal of its new second phase of its unprovoked war against the Ukrainian people. Their plan is to take full control of southern Ukraine. That came today from a Russian general who said the Kremlin wants the entire Donbass region. This would connect Russia to Crimea, which is, of course, the peninsula Russia annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Right now, Ukraine still controls smaller but still significant cities such as Mykolaiv and Odessa, Mariupol. Well, that's another story. This is where Vladimir Putin ordered his forces to create a blockade around a steel plant. Ukrainian forces and civilians have taken cover inside that steel plant today. They say they are running dangerously low on food and on water. Now, despite knowing that civilians are inside the plant and knowing others are scattered in surrounding neighborhoods and towns, Putin today refused to allow evacuation corridors so those people could escape to safer ground. Russia's focus may be in southern Ukraine, but today President Volodymyr Zelensky is revealing more horrors of this war in the northern region of Chernaiv. He says Russian occupiers drove some 400 people of a village to a school and then locked them in a basement for three weeks. And then Zelensky says the Russians mocked these civilians as they begged for even basics for survival. Take a listen. About 10 people died of suffocation alone. The youngest child held in the basement was three months old, while the oldest person was 93 years old. For more than three weeks, they were banned from leaving that place 24-7, even to go to the bathroom. And when someone asked to go out to get some clothes for the kids, the occupiers demanded that they sing the Russian national anthem. That's how the Russian soldiers had fun. That's the kind of impunity they felt. CNN's Ed Lavendera went to this village and has more now from this absolute horror story. War stopped time here. Bombs and artillery scorched this village in northern Ukraine. Russian occupation ravaged the minds of its people. The story of what happened in Yahidne is just emerging, revealing how the Russian army held this village hostage for more than 30 days. Sofia shows us the underground bunker in her shed where she first hid from the fighting. She says she had food stored here that the Russians ate. This is where she slept. Sofia says Russian soldiers went door to door, rounding people up and taking them at gunpoint into the basement of the village school. Sofia tells us that when the Russian soldiers moved them all into the basement of the school building, that they were put down there and that the soldiers told them that they were being put in the basement to die. 
A woman named Natalie took us into the basement where she was trapped. I was in a stupor, Natalie tells me. I was just sitting there, praying, hoping it would all stop soon. Residents tell us that there were about 350 people held hostage in the basement of this school building. Men, women, and children forced to live in these horrific conditions. In fact, it was so strangulating, there was so little air circulation that one resident told us that 12 elderly people died here because they couldn't breathe and their bodies were left while the fighting raged outside. These are some of the only known images captured in the school's basement. The faces say it all. She's telling me that about 35 people slept in this small room. Nobody could lay down. They slept kind of sitting with their knees up against their chest. The rooms are littered with makeshift beds, school books, and Russian troop meal boxes. But it's the art on the walls that stops you in your tracks. This is how the children pass the time. Colorful drawings on a canvas of anguish. The people who were trapped down here etched names onto this concrete wall. They marked the days with a calendar, crossing out the days as they went by. Everything down here has the feel of a World War II era concentration camp. Above the basement, Russian soldiers took over the school building. Residents say they were used as human shields. They knew the Ukrainian military wouldn't fire at the school with civilians inside. Olena grabs food from a humanitarian delivery truck and takes us to her home. Russian soldiers threw grenades through her windows and defecated on the house floors. She was also held hostage in the school basement with her one-year-old daughter. Did you think you were going to survive that? I thought my child would not survive, she tells me. I asked them to let me out so the child could breathe fresh air because she felt bad. They said, let her die. We don't care. Sofia, how did you feel when you got out of the basement of the school? She says one of the villagers opened the basement door and said the Russians left. The trapped villagers were surprised. In the morning, our guys entered the village, she said. We cried, we hugged them, and cried. What will you tell your daughter about this experience? Nothing, she says. Her daughter will not remember it, and she will tell her nothing. Jake, the villagers also tell us that they have no idea how many of their people were killed. They believe that the Russians buried bodies in the woods surrounding the villages, but it's impossible to check. The area is littered with landmines, too dangerous to go into. And if you notice that all of the women, we used their first names. They asked us that we not use their last names. And none of the men in the village would speak to us. And that's because Russian soldiers were going house to house, picking out the men, saying that they were looking for the Nazis in this village. Jake? Ed Lavendera. Thank you so much. Let's bring in uh, Volodymyr Omelan, who used to be Ukraine's Minister of Infrastructure. He has since joined his country's defense forces. Uh, Volodymyr, thanks for joining us. So you spent the early part of this week down in southern Ukraine. This is the area Russia now is admitting openly that they want to take complete control of. What did you see and how close is Putin to his goal of taking control of, of all of Donbass? Hello, Jake. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, yes, I just came back from Mykolaiv and frankly saying don't buy this what is told by Putin. His only goal is to conquer all Ukraine and then move forward to the European Union and NATO member states. He didn't change his mind. 
But he failed near Kyiv and he had to step back. Right now he concentrated all his forces to hit us from the east and also to try to destroy our armed forces in the south of Ukraine. Uh, but he cannot make it. And thanks to the artillery you provide us with and ammunition, we need more definitely. But it's already working and working very good. I was told by my friends that today in the morning they stopped a battalion of Russians and actually killed almost all of them. Russians which were armed with uh, World War II rifles and uh, uh, steel helmets. It was kind of a disaster, but they sent another battalion after another battalion. So it's really World War II and they do not change their tactics to kill as many as possible. And nobody cares whether it's Russian soldiers or Ukrainian ones. Today, uh, you tweeted video of heavy damage to a small town just north of Kyiv. Um, seeing the damage, it, it's hard to imagine anyone could possibly still live there now. H- have civilians mostly deserted these towns that have been so destroyed? Uh, if they were lucky, they uh, ran away before Russian invasion, but now trying to come back. Those people who left, uh, not uh, everybody survived, unfortunately. Many were tortured, and I witnessed personally uh, in many villages in the northern uh, Kyiv region how big destruction came with Russian army. And frankly saying, with this brutal invasion, Putin simply uh, disclosed the myths of Red Army in World War II. Because right now people are telling the same, that Russians are much worse than Nazi forces. And I think it's a great uh, strike for Putin and Russia, because it was difficult to be uh, worse than, uh, than Nazi, and they made it. The World Bank now estimates uh, the current cost to rebuild Ukraine's infrastructure would be about $60 billion. Uh, You were once in charge of Ukraine's infrastructure. Is that estimate accurate, do you think? It's difficult to say right now because uh, war is ongoing and those costs will increase for sure. But what would I do uh, in position of Minister of Infrastructure? Definitely we need some small fast money to repair uh, what is needed to be repaired right now. And actually Ukraine uh, government is already doing that without requesting any additional help. But to make a kind of rebuild of Ukraine or construction of new Ukraine, we, we should start first with audit then to decide what is going to be replaced and in what way, what kind of economy we are going to build. And then together with our allies, using Russian money, because Russia should pay for every destruction they they did to Ukraine, we can start building new Ukraine. You have voiced your frustration with a nation such as Germany uh, for continuing to purchase Russian fuel, which funds the war. A former Ukrainian prime minister told me yesterday, uh, that the countries that are still buying Russian oil, ga- uh, oil gas, and coal are, are giving Russia about a billion euros every day, which helps fuel the war. Um, Germany says it plans to cut off all Russian oil by the end of 2022. Do you think they could do so and should do so before then, before the end of the year? You know, before the war, uh, before 2014, it was also big discussion in Ukraine whether we should buy Russian gas and oil or we should use another sources. And this discussion was going on until Russian bombs hit our country. And I advise Germany not to waste too much time in this discussion because it's better to use Ukrainian experience uh, than to fill it with their own skin. How is it when Russian tanks uh, break your house?
Yeah. Well, Lodemir Omelon, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Please stay safe. Thank Coming you, up, why evacuees from Mariupol, who safely made it to the western part of Ukraine, are furious. And then we're going to talk to a Ukrainian combat medic who's fighting on the front lines in the Donetsk region. But first, a look at the unbelievable true story of the man who took on Vladimir Putin and lived to tell the tale, CNN's Sundance award-winning film, Navalny. Staying in our world lead, I feel as if my heart has been torn out. That is a direct quote from the mayor of Mariupol, who tells CNN that 20,000 civilians in his city, he estimates, are dead. 20,000, enough to fill every seat at Madison Square Garden. An estimated 100,000 people remain in the besieged port city as Russia flagrantly bombards evacuation corridors. CNN's Matt Rivers was at a train station in Lviv in western Ukraine earlier today, and he spoke to some who had just escaped the horrors of the South. The train was designated just for evacuees. If all went to plan, it would arrive here to Lviv, packed with hundreds fleeing war. Instead, just a handful of families finally found safety, including Polina and her daughter Irina, who fled Mariupol. They are furious. There are not more who got out. She says so many should have been evacuated, but the Russians kept shelling. They are not human beings. I don't know who gave birth to them. Horrific. Horrific, an apt word to describe what Russia has done to the people of Mariupol. Collecting dead bodies amongst the city's wreckage, a task now as commonplace as it is morbid. Some of the dead are loaded into Russian-marked trucks, while others have been buried in alleged mass graves seen here in new satellite imagery. And yet for the tens of thousands who survive here, they need to get out and cannot. He says humanitarian corridors declared by Russia are only on paper. Russian troops dominate the vast majority of the city. If they wanted to let people leave safely, they could. And yet several humanitarian corridors agreed to this week have failed, with Ukraine accusing Russia of repeatedly violating ceasefires. It's meant the number of evacuees following the planned route from Mariupol to Zaporizhia has slowed to a trickle. And even then, danger awaits. Ukraine's military says this train actually came under fire as it was leaving a station in Zaporizhia. Some of the train cars were so badly damaged they had to be left behind. And even the ones that could still travel, you can see here, have some damage left over. It's another example, Ukraine says, of how Russia continues to target civilians. For those from Mariupol, like Katya Yatsun, these are some of the first moments they've felt safe in weeks. We were just thinking about our survival, she says. I don't know how I'm going to tell my son about such terrifying events. She says she'll eventually tell her son about Russian military brutality, about the needless destruction of an entire city. And maybe her son will live long enough to return to Mariupol one day. Others doubt they'll have their chance. She says, I want to believe that I will return there, but I think we'll need many years to restore the city after what they've done, and I'm not going to be around that long. And Jake, it's not just people fleeing Mariupol who are risking their lives to get away from war. Earlier today, Ukrainian officials say some 25 people fleeing a city called Popazna in the the eastern part of the country came under fire from Russian forces. Thankfully, no one was injured, but it just goes to show you the danger that people are facing as they try and get somewhere safer. All right, Matt Rivers, thank you so much. A gut-wrenching statistics for you, more than 160 verified attacks, 160 
on health care facilities in Ukraine since Russia invaded less than two months ago. That's according to a new report from the World Health Organization, which also found one in three households home to someone with a chronic disease cannot get the care and medicine they need in Ukraine. Let's bring in Yurina Chornohus. She's a combat medic with the Ukrainian Defense Force. She's currently stationed in the contested Donetsk region of the Donbass part of the country. Yurina, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, how are you? How is your platoon? Uh, hello. Um, nice to hear you. I'm quite fine, and uh, as the rest of our army, I'm determined to win and to um, free our occupied lands. Your unit was on the outskirts of Mariupol. Your platoon commander uh, was killed trying to defend Mariupol. Tell us about what Russia has unleashed, the terror. What, what did you see in Mariupol? Um, uh, my hardest experience for these two months were there on the outskirts of Mariupol and the village, uh, which was, which is on the north of Mariupol. There, uh, me, my platoon, my company and my unit, we tried to restrain the, bait, the breakthrough of the army. Um, we uh, had... Um, uh, smaller forces in comparison to Russians there, because the main forces of our army were sent to Kiev to defend our capital, and um, we should deal uh, with really great uh, tank column, Russian tank column, um, having almost nothing, Just a little bit, and we had uh, heavy weapons like uh, tanks like Leopard or Abrams tanks ammunition, um, artillery shells, air defense systems, uh, we wouldn't allow. Yes. We're having some issues with your... uh, Commander. We're having some issues with your, uh, with the connection uh, right now. Let let me try again here while the service uh, rejiggers. Uh, uh, What, what, the, the mayor of Mariupol says that he thinks 20,000 might be killed. Does that seem reasonable to you? 20,000 people might be dead? Is that an accurate estimate, do you think? Yes, I think yes. In my own eyes, I saw uh, Russian troops, they just, uh, they they are constantly bombing uh, the villages, Ukrainian villages, cities, well, um, hundreds and thousands of civilians are dying. I saw that in that village, and I see it uh, every day. And really need to have a weapon to stop them because um, we are determined to win, but we are just wasting out of cannons, you know. Before we before we go, um, it was- before we go, I just want to give you an opportunity. Yeah. What's your message to either the world or to your fellow Ukrainians? It, it's day fifty-eight of this horrific war. Whatever audience you want to address, what, what is your message? I think we lost her. Right now, we need, we need weapons, right? All right, well, thank you so much, Yurina. Uh, I'm sorry the connection wasn't better, but you're in an active war zone, so that certainly makes sense. Coming up, to mask or not to mask when you get on a plane or a train? That's the question CNN is going to try to answer. That's next. That's next. 
In our national lead, mask on, mask off. If you're confused, you're not alone, especially after a federal judge ruled that the federal travel mask mandate was no longer valid. Since then, airlines, ride-sharing apps, and various modes of public transportation have said you can ride without a mask if you want. But, as CNN's Pete Montine found, it is not as clear-cut as it might seem. We put the new nationwide patchwork of mask rules at airports and transit hubs to the test. A mask-optional rideshare started my trip from Washington, D.C. Okay, we're going to Union Station. No mask required. Most people here are still wearing masks, like Verna Swan, who was boarding our train to Philadelphia. I just feel like I need to take more precautions than, than anyone else, so... You're just being careful. I'm being careful. After Monday's sudden end of the federal transportation mask mandate, Amtrak was among the first to announce that masks are now optional. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Conductor Anthony Tisdale told me he is going maskless after months of wearing one on the job. I'm like, yay! Took it right off. My train took me to Philadelphia's center city Amtrak hub. Philly was one of the few major cities to have an indoor mask mandate, but it was just rescinded. It changes a lot, so it has been confusing. I just feel like I should wear a mask regardless. My trip continued with a ride on public transit. SEPTA here in Philadelphia, one of the mass transit systems where masks are optional, unlike the New York City subway system where masks are still mandatory. The change here happened so abruptly, the sign hasn't even been changed yet. During my travels on Thursday, Philadelphia's airport was one of the few still requiring masks inside the terminal. LAX in Los Angeles is joining the list, along with New York's Kennedy and LaGuardia. I just think it's confusing. They just, you all need to be on the same page. But the airport's mask rule no longer applies the moment you board. About to go down the jetway, another change in policy. We're leaving the airport where masks were required. Now we're getting on the plane. The transportation mask mandate is over, so I can take my mask off. Once seated, I did decide to wear a mask. The 32-minute flight back to D.C. was full. It is a new era for travel, now governed by personal choice and a patchwork of rules. Here at Reagan National Airport, where we landed, no mask is required. The point is, it's getting harder and harder to know the local mask rules as you travel. Two examples of Philadelphia International Airport. They just told us the mask rules there are loosening up, where at LAX, the mask rules there are getting tighter. You can still wear a mask if you want to, Jake. In fact, the CDC still recommends it while traveling. Pete Montine, thanks so much. In January and February, 40% of COVID deaths, 40%, were among those Americans considered fully vaccinated. Does the definition of fully vaccinated need to change? Stay with us. In our health lead, about 40%, 40 of U.S. COVID deaths in January and February were among individuals considered to be fully vaccinated. These are individuals who have received their initial series, so either two doses of Moderna, or two doses of Pfizer, or one dose of Johnson & Johnson. That's according to a CNN analysis of data from the CDC. Now, overall, you should get vaccinated. The risk of dying from COVID is still 10 times higher for unvaccinated people. But this does raise serious questions as to whether somebody who has not gotten the booster should be considered fully vaccinated. Here to help this down, break this down for us, is Dr. Megan Ranney. She's a professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. 
Dr. Ranney, doesn't this suggest that the Biden administration needs to change the classification for vaccinations so you're not considered fully vaccinated until you get that third shot in the case of uh, Pfizer and Moderna? So I think, Jake, that what this shows is that you have a primary series and that the boosters are an essential part of that. Just like for tetanus, for many other diseases, it's you get your primary series and then you get additional vaccines as well. That data that you cited that 40% of folks who died were, uh, were vaccinated, the reality is those folks represent the minority um, of Americans. The reality is that actually when you look at folks who died, most of them, 90%, were either unvaccinated or unboosted. So to me, the message is vaccines still work. The primary series is better than nothing. And if you haven't gotten your booster yet, go out and get it. The last part, Jake, is expect to get another booster this fall before the expected autumn surge. So I'm sure many people will be shocked by the number 40%. And again, to underline everything you just said, obviously, being vaccinated is better than not being vaccinated. Being boosted is essential. Um, But to have 40% of those who died in January and February from COVID to be people who got two shots, not necessarily the booster, what more do we know about this, these, these individuals in this 40%? Are they people who had comorbidities? Are they people who, who smoked? Are they people who were over the age of 70? Uh, w- w- do we know anything more? Yeah, so they're mostly older folks. They are mostly people with comorbidities, things like diabetes in particular, as well as morbid ob- obesity. But as you go up in age groups, that risk of death increases. That's why the boosters are so important for 65 plus. And it's why I am encouraging the fourth shot for people who are in that older age group today as well. Um, It's the same patterns that we've seen throughout COVID, where the older you are, the more comorbidities that you have, the more likely you are to die. We've seen that play out with Omicron. Unfortunately, there is some immune escape um, from the vaccines with this new variant. But that primary series is still a heck of a lot better than nothing. Again, only 22% of Americans have received uh, no shots, and those still represented 60% of deaths. Right. But I guess my question is, shouldn't we consider fully vaccinated to be the two shots plus the booster at the very minimum? I mean, shouldn't there be, shouldn't the CDC say that that's the classification, given the fact that that booster is so important? So I think that we'll be moving there in the future. Uh, for today, I would rather have someone show up and get their two shots than get none. Um, in my own state of Rhode Island, we're actually requiring people to get the booster if they work in healthcare, or else we're going to ask them to wear an N95 when they are in patient-facing areas because we think the booster is so important. I won't be surprised if the CDC does move there, but it's going to require a discussion between them and the FDA. Um, I want to ask you about masks because there's a lot of confusion for Americans right now about whether or not they, they need to continue to wear masks. The nationwide travel mask mandate has ended. But Los Angeles is reinstating the requirement for public transportation. Philadelphia recently reinstated theirs. Then they rescinded it again. How do you see it? Obviously, you are most protected if you have a good mask on, an N95 mask. Um, But how do you see this uh, mask mandate? What, What do you suggest? I think it is tremendously confusing right now. What I come back to our survey showing that 60% of Americans remain committed to masking up in public indoor locations, both for their own safety and for the safety of others. The reality is if you are out there in public, in crowded spaces without a good mask on, you are bound to come down with COVID. Now, right now, it is far safer to come down with COVID 
than three months ago, six months ago, or even or much less a year ago, thanks to vaccines, thanks to boosters, and of course, thanks to Paxlovid and monoclonal antibodies. Chance of this being a mortal disease is much, much lower. But we can't yet predict all of the long-term effects, and a mask is your be- best protection. So I say, I actually took a flight yesterday through Philadelphia. We got off the plane where about half the people had been masked, and the flight attendants announced you got to wear your mask in the Philadelphia airport because at that point, the mask mandate was still in place. People Mm. around me were utterly confused. They were talking about their vaccination status. They didn't know whether or not they actually had to put their masks back on or not. So I think the simple message is wear a mask if you're concerned about getting COVID. Wear the best mask you can. If you don't care so much about COVID because you're vaccinated and boosted, expect that you're going to get it if you go unmasked. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. Appreciate it. She lost her husband to a roadside bomb in Iraq, but then she found out some of her husband's remains had been secretly dumped in a landfill. Her fight against the Pentagon is next. In our national lead, almost 300 U.S. service members' partial remains were secretly dumped in a Virginia landfill, according to a 2011 Washington Post investigation. One of those unceremonious burials was of Army Sergeant First Class Scott R. Smith. Smith paid the ultimate sacrifice in 2006. He was killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq. His Gold Star wife, Gary Lynn Smith, sought answers. But, she says, the Pentagon personally attacked and slandered her after she protested her husband's uncivil burial. This week, a federal labor and management panel ruled that the Army also wrongly denied her a promotion at her civilian Army job, because of her public protest. Gary Lynn Smith joins us now. Gary Lynn, obviously nothing can replace the enormous loss you've endured or the indignity of what they did. Um, But you did just win a case that's been in the works for years. Tell us about it. Tell us about the case. Well, um, thank you for having me first off. And uh, you are correct. This case ended up Um, beyond anything that we could have imagined. As you know, the MSPB board has lacked a quorum for the last five years. So we've been waiting in limbo for five years to get a final verdict on this case. And not only did the MSPB board agree with the initial decision from Administrative Judge McLaughlin, but they expanded the whistleblower laws um, for protections for whistleblowers Uh, by making this case a precedential case um, that will literally help future whistleblowers, we hope, to stand up the way that I did and come forward uh, with their own stories of prohibited personnel practices by supervisors and other government officials. So the Air Force sent you a letter in an attempt to explain how your husband's remains ended up in a landfill, but the letter misstated the year it was sent, and they didn't even get your husband's name right. Tell us about how that letter propelled you into action. So initially, Dover Air Force Base wanted to call me um, to discuss the disposition. They were basically refusing to put the information that service members went into a landfill. They later admitted that over 2,000 service members were placed into the landfill and that the practice had been longstanding practice Um, dating back to at least 1996, according to Trevor Dean, a mortuary manager at the time. So when they refused to put the information in writing, I responded to Trevor Dean and and asked him, please just put this, you know, in an informal email is fine. I don't need letterhead. 
Much to my surprise, they sent me the letter. It was dated, uh, I believe, the year 2008 when they were responding in 2011. And they didn't even have Scott's name correct. They called him Robert, which was actually his father's name. And that propelled you into action? That that got you mad enough to, to take action? Yeah, that's when I began reaching out to, at the time, Congressman Rush Holt And uh, we decided the best course of action was for his office to question DOD legislative affairs while I continued to ask the questions at Dover Air Force Base Mortuary. And not surprising to either of us at the time, he received much different answers than I was receiving from Dover Mortuary. And then eventually we kind of were at a standstill where they weren't going to give up any more information. So at that point, we decided to bring it out into the public. And that's sort of where the story about Scott kind of finishes and where my story kind of begins with my retaliation at the workplace um, and the case with the MSPB um, and prohibited personnel practices. So your lawyer told The Washington Post that this case could have positive implications for future whistleblower cases. Has this experience changed how you look at the Army? It has changed how I look primarily at a lot of entities in the federal government. I'm probably one of the most patriotic people. They'll never take that away from me. Scott did give his life in service to this country. I still think that this is the greatest country that there is. However, I think we have work to do. And the fact that The recent Washington Post article ended with a statement from a Pentagon official stating that they're considering an appeal, which would now go to the District Court of Appeals, is troubling in and of itself. It feels like another blatant attack on me. It feels like they are trying to prolong this to financially destroy me. I've been in litigation. This case was filed 10 years ago in the year 2012, and this is a good portion of my life. So that they really missed an opportunity, Jake, to apologize in there, even if they disagreed with the board's decision. The law is what the court says it is. And they could have at least respected the opinion and they could have moved forward by saying we want to move forward and we apologize. They missed another opportunity. There still has not been an apology 15 years later. Yeah, they owe you an apology, Secretary of Defense. Austin, even though he is not personally responsible, he owes you an apology. Before we go, tell us something about your husband. Tell us, obviously we know about his patriotism and his selflessness. Tell us something else about him so that we we can take that home. He was one of the nicest guys. He was willing to help anyone and uh, everyone looked up to him. He always had the right words to say and a great smile. And we're looking at his smile right now. And I can see no, no lies detected. Thank you so much, uh, Gary Lynn Smith. <laughs> that's, appre- true, that's true. Appreciate it. And, and uh, stay in touch. Because if they appeal that, we want to we wanna stay on top of this. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we're live in a key Ukrainian city as Russia unveils its plans for Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, after initially refusing to give examples, the Florida government is now giving some examples of the math textbooks that the state of Florida banned because they have, quote, objectionable content. So what's actually in these math textbooks? Plus, Majority Leader, Minority Leader, rather, Kevin McCarthy issuing a defiant denial 
of a New York Times report that he told colleagues he was going to suggest to Donald Trump that Trump resign after the January 6th insurrection. So, of course, there's audio tape of him saying just that. So how will the Trump loyalists in Congress and the country react? And leading this hour, a Russian general says the Kremlin's goal is to take, quote, full control of southern Ukraine. The reason why? If Putin gets the Donbass region, Russia would have a land bridge to Crimea, taking over a significant portion of Ukraine. Saying what the goal is and actually accomplishing it, of course, are two very different things. So far, Ukraine still controls other cities in the region, such as Odessa and Mykolaiv. But Mariupol remains on the brink, with Russia controlling all but one steel plant complex. CNN's Jim Shudo reports from Ukraine right now on the struggle for survival in Mariupol. Evidence of new horrors emerging from the desperate Ukrainian standoff in Mariupol. Satellite images show what appears to be a massive grave just outside the city. A local official accuses Russian forces of war crimes there. Russian President Vladimir Putin has claimed Russian forces liberated Mariupol and says he personally called off an assault on the Azovstal steel plant, where the last of the city's defenders are now dug in, along with hundreds of civilians. The U.S. is not convinced, however, that Russia controls all of the city, and Ukrainian officials have denied it. Actions, not words. I think we have to watch and see what the Russians actually do here. Ukraine says that Russia has not agreed to establish civilian corridors to allow residents to escape. It's important to understand that the lives that are still there, they're in the hands of just one person. Today, the Russian military announced a new goal for the invasion, capturing Mariupol and the entire Ukrainian coastline, as well as creating a land bridge between Russian-held areas in the east and Crimea. There is already fierce fighting in the Donbass region in the east. A senior U.S. defense official says Russia has added 20 battalion tactical groups to its forces there just over the past week, bringing the total to 85. President Volodymyr Zelensky says the moves will not deter Ukrainian defenders. None of these steps will help Russia in the war against our state. They can only delay the inevitable, the time when the invaders will have to leave our territory. Ukrainian intelligence released what it says is further evidence of war crimes by Russia, intercepted communications among Russian commanders ordering soldiers to murder Ukrainian prisoners of war. The U.S. response to Russia's ruthless campaign remains a combination of weapons shipments to Ukraine and economic sanctions on Russia, neither of which has yet stopped the war or the alleged war crimes. Today, I asked President Biden's deputy national security advisor whether the U.S. is considering intervening more directly. Why is the U.S.-NATO response sufficient, in your view, in the president's view? Well, we're going we're gonna to have time to hold these people to account for what they've done, Jim. Everything short of a direct military confrontation with Russia, we will do. And we'll do with our allies and we'll intensify it for as long as it takes. The concern among some administration officials is that Russian ambitions do not stop at the land bridge between Crimea and the east, but extend the whole length of the coastline, including an intended assault, at least, on Odessa, and then carrying that all the way through to the north uh, eastern region of Moldova, known as Transnistria, which would make uh, Ukraine really a landlocked state, a rump state, and cut it off from both the commercial and strategic interests in the Black Sea. Now, as you say, Jake, there's a lot between, a lot of space between that ambition 
and the reality of carrying it out on the ground. But, but it does speak to this concern, right, that the war does not end tomorrow or next week or next month or perhaps even next year. But this is, this is a long-term ambition of Putin and Russia, which would then mean a long war. Jim Shudo Jim and Lviv for us. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to bring in Democratic Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs of California. She's on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, thanks for joining us. So you say Russia, in addition to all the other horrific things that country's doing, that they're weaponizing hunger in Ukraine by purposefully causing food shortages. You've called on the U.S. to make sure support for Ukraine includes humanitarian assistance. Yesterday, President Biden pledged another $800 million for military aid. Are, are you aware of efforts to also provide the humanitarian assistance you say is needed? Yes, um, President Biden has committed over a billion dollars in humanitarian assistance for Ukraine and for Ukrainians who are fleeing. Uh, we're also working to make sure that the planting season in Ukraine can continue as best as it can, since we know that in addition to Russia actually targeting uh, these food sources, that uh, making sure that Ukraine can continue to produce food as it is an exporter of food to the rest of the world and especially low-income countries will be incredibly important to avert food insecurity in the rest of the world. Uh, and we're continuing uh, to assess the situation and make sure we're doing everything we can to help Ukrainians and help make sure that this issue of hunger uh, doesn't, uh, as much as it can, not affect uh, the rest of the world. So today, the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, he took issue publicly with how long it is taking for U.S. military assistance to actually arrive in Ukraine. He tweeted, quote, the administration has almost hit the three billion ceiling Congress gave them to send weapons to Ukraine. I appreciate the administration's work on this. But the reality is it took six weeks to get three billion dollars out the door. So Senator Inhofe says when lawmakers return from recess next week, uh, Congress needs to look at all tools available to expedite the process. Do you agree? Do you agree with his characterization uh, that the process needs to be quickened? I, I get briefed every week uh, as a member of the House Armed Services Committee on the weapons assistance we're sending and how we're getting it into the country and through. And I think that we are getting a, a huge amount of uh, weaponry in very quickly. And I think that the Biden administration and our partner and allies uh, who are also sending weapons should be commended for this work. Now, it's clear that we are in a new phase of the conflict with the focus on the East. And so we are going to continue to reassess uh, what kinds of weapons will be most effective. It's why the president has announced another $800 million package and why next week, when we are back in session, we're likely to vote on a supplemental request from the administration and a lend-lease bill that will help streamline this process so that uh, we remove any congressional barriers to the administration being able to get these weapons out the door as quickly as possible. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is because you've called on the U.S. to not just support a war crimes investigation into what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but also you want the U.S. to join the International Criminal Court to ensure that Russia is held accountable. Is that likely to happen? I have never seen uh, any president uh, take seriously the idea of joining uh, the ICC. Well, you know, the United States uh, actually signed the Rome Statute. We just never ratified it, uh, which is the treaty that uh, 
created the ICC and that countries signed to be a party to it. And we are already seeing bipartisan support for the ICC investigations into Russia's crimes in Ukraine. Uh, we passed a bill in the House that would make sure the U.S. is providing support to investigations and evidence collection for these investigations. But I think it's incredibly important that as we support the ICC investigation in Ukraine, we also officially join because uh, right now we are in a fight for the future of the international system for if it's going to be an international system based on autocracy or if it's going to be one based on the values that we all hold dear and, and a very important part of making sure that our side wins, that we continue to have a rules-based international system uh, is that we hold ourselves to the same rules we're asking other countries to hold themselves to because one of the biggest uh, things that gives us power is our ability to muster other countries. We've seen that in this case, that we've been able to work with partners and allies around the world to stand firmly and united against Russia's aggression. And it's going to be important for us to be able to keep doing that, that we hold ourselves to these values and that other countries continue to want to join coalition with us and stand up against the aggression of uh, folks like Vladimir Putin. Democratic Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up, a look at what happens if parts of southern Ukraine fall. CNN is going to go live to a crucial Ukrainian city. Then, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, is in court. She's taking the stand. Turns out she doesn't seem to remember much about January 6th. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, fighting rages along Ukraine's eastern front as Russian forces consolidate in the beleaguered Donbass region. This is pleas for evacuation corridors fall on Putin's deaf ears. CNN's Sam Kiley is live for us in Dnipro. And Sam, we know Russia wants full control over southern Ukraine. How close might the Russians be to actually reaching that goal? I think they're a very long way off at the moment, uh, Jake. They're focusing their attention, as you suggested there, really in the east, uh, particularly uh, in and around the city of Kramatorsk, which in a sense is, is, is in a, an enclave that is almost Pacman-shaped. You've got Russian troops now uh, surrounding the north, south uh, and uh, uh, east of uh, a, a pocket of Ukrainian troops where really the bulk of the Ukrainian forces have been concentrated across what has to be said, a very long front line, some 300 kilometers at least. Uh, but clearly the Russians have refocused, as they said they would, on trying to capture those eastern areas. And now we're hearing from a significant general in the Russian army that they want to also grab onto uh, larger areas of the coastal a literal area along the Azov Sea, of course, the Black Sea, uh, but they are also being held up there, Jake. So I think at the moment we're going to see a focus, and we are seeing a focus of their efforts principally in the east. If Mariupol falls to the Russians, what does that mean for Russia's plan overall? Well, Mariupol has been a really important defense, a strategic defense of this city over many, many weeks now at enormous cost to Ukrainians. As we all know, there's some 100,000 Ukrainians still stuck, civilians stuck in the city. But more importantly, there's estimated to be about 1,000 fighters stuck in the Azov steel plant there. Uh, Azov Tal, it's called uh, a warren of uh, industrial sites and underground tunnels with perhaps several hundred civilians too. But they are absorbing a lot of military operations from the Russians. They cannot, the Russians cannot get them out. They've got at least 12 battle groups, that's some 12,000 men at least, tied up 
in that fight that they are having to continue to pursue. So as long as those Ukrainian troops can hold out, those Russian troops are not available for reinforcements. Uh, particularly, I think the suspicion is that they would try and drive north from Na Na uh, Mariupol in order to close a gap. If you look at a map there, Jake, you can see uh, in the north, you've got the Russians have captured Izium. If you look due south from there, you can see uh, Mariupol, if they can join those two uh, front lines up, uh, consolidate their positions, they can trap Ukrainian forces uh, in the east, uh, and that would really, really severely damage the uh, Ukrainian effort. But for now, therefore, those, fi those fighters are continuing to hang on in Mariupol, very important of the whole national defense structures of Ukraine. All right, Sam Kiley, thank you so much. CNN takes a look inside some of the math textbooks that Florida banned because of, quote, objectionable content. That story's next. In our nationally today, Florida education officials claim that some elementary school math books are being used to indoctrinate students. Florida recently rejected about 41% of the textbook submissions, claiming they referenced critical race theory or other prohibited topics. CNN's Leila Santiago reports on some of the images from the books that Governor DeSantis's administration is objecting to. These are the images released by Florida's Department of Education, examples of what it finds too objectionable to be included in public school math books. One of the images, which the Department of Education says were sent to them by the public, shows a bar graph measuring racial prejudice by political identification. Another, adding and subtracting polynomials, a section that begins with, what, me, racist? It goes on to talk about racial prejudice and measuring bias. Public school textbooks, just the latest battleground in a culture war waged by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's really outrageous things going on about uh, what they're doing uh, by basically using critical race theory to bring ideology and political activism uh, as uh, to the forefront of education. Florida's Department of Education says it's rejecting publishers' attempts to indoctrinate students. The overwhelming majority of materials they deemed problematic were for students K through fifth grade. Some of the books, according to the department, did not meet state standards. Others incorporated prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies, including critical race theory. It's kind of interesting to see this ever-expanding umbrella under this fear-mongering campaign that's, you know, using uh, critical race theory as the sort of Trojan horse in education. Another reason textbooks were rejected, references to social-emotional learning in math. It's a practice that supports the social side of learning and emotional needs of children, as described by the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning. This is a fight about, honestly, next to nothing. A lot of this is inspired by political disputes, and by political advantage, there is a vast uh, industry in this country that uses contempt and hatred to divide us politically. And I think sometimes that industry of division and contempt uses um, schools to advance its own aims. A New York Times review of 21 of the rejected books found many of the textbooks included social-emotional learning content, but found little that touched on race or critical theory. Perhaps not a focus in the textbooks, but a focus for the political playbook of a potential 2024 presidential candidate. Nobody wants this crap. They're trying to shove it down the throats of the American people. You're not doing that here in the state of Florida. 
And we should mention the Department of Education released those images that were sent to them by the public. But when I asked the press secretary where exactly these images came from, in other words, which textbooks uh, these images are from, we did not hear back. And Jake, I've been talking to a handful of math teachers here in Florida. They worry about this delaying things. They worry that what will now be an appeal process by some of these publishers will be a back and forth between publishers and, and and uh, the state and the Department of Education, and that could delay them in getting materials in hand so they can start planning for next year. It seems like a, an easy thing to provide for you, the textbooks and the page numbers of those Correct. images. Yeah. Layla Santiago in Miami, thanks so much. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy caught on tape making candid comments about President Donald Trump, comments he was denying he ever made. That's next. In our politics lead, a Civil War-era law is at the center of a hearing today. The stage is in Atlanta courtroom where Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, known for her outlandish statements supporting the big lie about the 2020 election, Greene is testifying under oath. The issue at hand, should she be barred from running for office and serving the people of Georgia, given her role leading up to the violent assault on the Capitol to overthrow the rightful election of Joe Biden as president? There's a provision in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that bars anyone who participates in an insurrection from serving in elected office. Uh, Even under oath, uh, Green today continued to lie about the election. Take a listen. You believed that Joe Biden had lost the election to Mr. Trump, right? Well, yes, we saw a tremendous amount of voter fraud. We have uh, investigations going on right now in the state of Georgia. There's investigations going on in multiple states. Uh, my own husband showed up to vote uh, in the general election, and when he went in to vote in person, he was told that he had already voted by absentee ballot, when in fact he had never even requested an absentee ballot. But, There's but, but, many instances. CNN's Amber Walker is there in Atlanta. Um, Amber, can you help explain uh, Congresswoman Green's defense here, as well as how the lawyers challenging her responded? Uh, Yeah. Hi, Jake. So Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyers uh, argued a a few points. First off, uh, they said that the deadly attacks on January 6th did not amount to an insurrection. They referred to it as a riot. They also said that Marjorie Taylor Greene did not engage in those deadly events, differentiating it between uh, the word incite. Um, and the key word being here is engage, because that provision in the 14th Amendment says that any office holder who, quote, engages in insurrection should not be able to serve in office again. And her lawyer also insisted that she was also a victim on that day who was afraid for her life, who had to be whisked away to safety. Now, if you're listening to this three-plus-hour testimony, uh, you heard multiple times Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, I don't recall. I don't remember. I think we counted about 50 times she said that when she was questioned about her actions, about her comments and social media posts leading up to the January 6th insurrection. But she was able to recall one thing. Listen. You may answer the question to the best of your ability. I had no knowledge of any attempt. And so that's a question that I can't answer. Well, I'm... I can't answer that question. 
Now, lawyers challenging uh, the candidacy of Marjorie Taylor Greene, they have uh, much simpler arguments, if you will. Um, they showed videos of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, making a statement where she said that this is our 1776 moment, a, refer a reference to the American Revolution, and also in public indicating that she opposed any peaceful transfer of power. So uh, their argument is that her words fueled the violence, the deadly violence on that day, and thereby aided the insurrectionists. Jake. Amber, what's the likelihood that uh, Congresswoman Green will be barred from running for office? Well, Jake, you have to keep in mind that this provision in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution is from the Civil War era. It was intended to ban representatives who served in the Confederacy from returning to office. So this is a provision that's never been tested in modern history. So this is going to be uh, a very difficult case. And Jake, I should mention, um, court wrapped up a few moments ago. The judge um, is expected to make a decision um, in the coming days, Jake. All right, Emma Walker, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here in Washington, Lordy, there's a tape. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy caught in a lie after denying a report from the New York Times that he had planned to recommend to then-President Donald Trump that Trump resign from office as impeachment loomed in the immediate days after the January 6th Capitol attack. McCarthy called that reporting in the New York Times, quote, totally false and wrong, but a newly released audio recording shows it was totally true and correct. I'm seriously thinking of having that conversation with him tonight. I haven't talked to him in a couple of days. Um, from what I know of him, I mean, you guys all know him too. Do you think he'd ever back away? But what what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to call him. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. The recording comes from a House Republican leadership conference call from four days after the insurrection, and it backs up reporting from The New York Times, Alex Burns, and Jonathan Martin from their upcoming book. A source tells CNN that McCarthy tried to do some damage control last night. He spoke with Trump after the release of the bombshell recordings. We're told the former president is not upset with the House Republican leader, who has worked very hard to stay in Trump's good graces over the last year. Let's dig into this with our team here. And Abby, is this going to hurt McCarthy or not? I think it might. I think there's still a possibility. Look, there are a lot of Republicans uh, in his conference who don't like him very much and uh, don't think that he's particularly effective and don't think that he's particularly loyal to former President Trump. And if there's one thing that this tape shows, it's that McCarthy's support for Trump right now is opportunistic. And that is obvious, but now there's proof. And I think this only gives them uh, more ammunition to when the time comes, which is frankly not right now, but when the time comes, make a case against him. Uh, there are some other much more Trumpy people who want to be, uh, you know, first in line for the speakership, and I don't think they're going to let this one go. Jim Jordan comes to mind, Chief Congressman Jim Jordan. Um, Sungman, both uh, The Washington Post and CNN have reported 
that Donald Trump's not mad at Kevin McCarthy. Uh, in fact, he's just still delighted that McCarthy is so uh, subservient to him and obsequious. Uh, what does that say? Right. Well, I mean, if you look at the whole episode, it does underscore just how much power that Donald Trump has over the party, that if Kevin McCarthy is willing to go out and lie, frankly, about what is on videotape, about what he was going to say. And, and you've seen kind of just how Kevin McCarthy's behavior has played out over the last, you know, over the last year or so, that even like in the aftermath of the insurrection, yes, he was angry. We saw his floor speech, but he has just kind of really crawled back into or tried to crawl back into Donald Trump's good graces. So I think Trump makes thinks that makes him look powerful. And there are other examples of Republicans who were very critical of him after the attack who did, you know, again, get back into, um, you know, Donald Trump's good graces by frankly just crawling back to Mar-a-Lago and begging for forgiveness. Yeah. So we know that Trump is not only the leader of the MAGA movement, sometimes he's a follower of the MAGA movement. Sometimes he does what they want him to do. Steve Cortez is a a fixture in the MAGA movement. He tweeted this, Frank Luntz's roomie has to go. Frank Luntz is a Republican pollster, and I think he and McCarthy share an apartment. Um, Frank Luntz's roomie has to go. Not America first. Dishonest, disloyal, in the pocket of big tech. Adios. So... He might be in trouble with the MAGA movement, even if Trump himself is not mad right now. Yeah, but I think he already wasn't very popular, as uh, you know, as we already heard here. I think he's already not popular with uh, a Matt Gates or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Or, so it's not that surprising that there are MAGA people that are complaining about him. I, I, just from observing Trump over the years, it seems that he doesn't really seem to care that much about what you say. He cares about what you do. So if you so look at his endorsement of J.D. Vance. Sure, McCarthy had already said things publicly that he had to go down and and beg for forgiveness for. And once Trump understood that, oh, I now have him under my thumb, and and I can have control him, and he'll do whatever I want. That's all that really matters. And so we, you know, we're getting reports. They have this conversation. We will have to see what Trump says publicly. But if I could very easily see Trump just thinking oh, this is what he thought in his conscience, and he overrode it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what I like in people. <laughs> I like people who override so their So even conscience. if he knows from right and yes. wrong, he's willing, he's willing to, to put it all it. aside. Yes, exactly. What, what do you think? Yeah, I keep thinking about there's a focus group that I did for The New York Times back in January and was asking a group of Republican voters about the the response after January 6th. And I mentioned that specific quote that, that McCarthy had said publicly. He said, I think Trump, quote, bears responsibility. And I asked them about things like Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity's texts to Mark Meadows that day saying, call it off. And the response from these Republican voters was pretty unanimously well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, that I think that a lot of these people criticize Trump to try to get in the good graces of the establishment or K Street or corporate America, that while you all sitting around the table think that the insincere thing is the praise for Trump and that the sincere thing is what he's saying on these phone calls, the criticism, there are a lot of Republican voters that actually see it the other way around, that they think that when a Republican like McCarthy is out there criticizing Trump, that he's just trying to do that to make nice with someone like Liz Cheney, who was on the call, and that in reality, he's a Trump guy through and through. I, I just think that's a fascinating dynamic. Uh, and it's, it's part of why I am, am skeptical that unless Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns have some more stuff in their bag of tricks, they may well have more recordings <laughs> that we will hear. It seems likely, at least at this point, that McCarthy will survive this. So speaking of new recordings, uh, there is another audio <laughs> recording which uh, w- was released in which McCarthy claims Trump agreed that he bears some responsibility for the January 6th attack. Let's take a listen. I've been very clear to the president 
He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. I asked him personally today, does he hold responsibility for what happened? Does he feel bad about what happened? He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened. Um, and he needs to acknowledge that. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is one Nothing of those things. Nothing means anything. Right, yeah. I mean, you. this is one of those things where um, the, the contents of the conversation were more or less reported, but it is something to hear the words come out of his mouth. Well, he did and, not and, remember and, the call we were asked about. <laughs> and to know that, you know, just, you know, days later, really, he went down to, to Mar-a-Lago to make sure that he was able to get uh, the, the the donor list uh, in order to fund fundraise right. from Trump. But I, I, I don't necessarily think that, I don't think any of this hurts Trump. You know, Trump's support is pretty rock solid among Republicans. He can pretty much do and say what he wants, even saying that he deserved responsibility and then changing his mind the next day. Uh, it's just a question of whether, um, you know, I, I, and I think that your, your focus group um, voters, that makes sense. That's what I, that's the sense I get too. But I think in Washington, there are just a lot of people who kind of want to get rid of Kevin McCarthy and they want to use something as an excuse. And this might be a decent excuse for them to, 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 to at least injure him politically, given that he's not in a particularly strong political position right now. Have Scalise or Stefanik, the number two and number three House Republicans in leadership, have they said anything to support McCarthy? So what I found interesting from regarding Steve Scalise, the sta- if you look at the statement from his spokeswoman, first of all, she clarified that neither Scalise nor his team had any role in releasing that tape, which, is, which I, I get why they have to say that. But there is actually no explicit support for McCarthy in this, which I thought was kind of an, a fascinating kind of line to straddle. But at the same time, you do have other Republicans coming out, I mean, proactively and, all, uh, and also potentially nudged by McCarthy himself, who are issuing support, supportive statements of Kevin McCarthy. You know, Ashley Henson, who's considered a rising star mm-hmm. in the conference, you know, sent out a statement today. You've seen other comments like that. Um, when we were talking about the split between Trump and the MAGA movement, I think one thing that might be more problematic for Kevin McCarthy is his comments saying he wants to kick some of his problematic, problematic members off Twitter. I think that might actually yeah. bubble up. The, the um, big tech uh, right, line right. and Steve Cortez. Well, because he's, because he's been publicly yeah. leading the charge against big tech. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and that, that is exactly, that's, that's getting exactly on the wrong side of not just MAGA people, frankly, but a lot of Republicans and inciting one particular person, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who loves to make a scene. Yeah, she does, she does. Thanks one and all. Great to see all of you. Be sure to tune in to Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern. That's where you can get more Abby Phillip. And who doesn't want more Abby Phillip in their life? Coming up, prices on the rise and everyone placing blame. How will inflation play out in the midterms? That's next. In our money lead, this week, President Biden hit the road to tout his accomplishments, but warned Russia's war on Ukraine will, quote, take its toll on the economy. Biden also stuck the blame on Putin for inflation. However, as Jeff Zeleny reports, blame who you want, but in just 200 days, frustrated voters are headed to the polls. When you go to the grocery store, it feels like you're shopping in Hawaii. But Mariama Davis lives in Georgia and feels the sting of inflation for herself and customers at her boutique, The Beehive. The idea that eggs are $3 now is, that's a lot. People have their families to feed, so if they have an option between buying a gift or putting food on the table, 
I'm going to expect folks to put food on the table. Six months before voters decide if Democrats maintain control of Congress, a sour mood is hanging over the economy. As inflation looms as a major issue in a national election for the first time since 1980. Some blame President Biden. Ever since Mr. Biden took office, everything has been going up. Others do not. It's a number of things. I, don't, I wouldn't just blame President Biden solely. Yet it's a problem he owns and one of the biggest challenges facing the White House. At Daddy D's Barbecue, owner Christiana Coker-Jackson sees inflation everywhere. I love that. From paper goods to the cost of meat to how often people are dining out. We're not seeing the same amount of, of traffic that we normally do. And I think that's a fear of just spending with the talk of inflation, inflation, inflation. Customers are scared. And as a Democrat, she's scared of the consequences come November. If we can't get out and vote for the midterms, then all the work that we did in 2020 is not really going to matter because then we're going to have a handicapped president. Georgia is also a hot political battleground, which Biden narrowly won in 2020. This year, it will help determine whether Democrats hold the Senate by re-electing Raphael Warnock, his early campaign ads trying to redirect any economic blame. What if I told you shipping container companies have been making record profits while prices have been skyrocketing on you? That's why I'm pushing to hold them accountable. But that message is competing with loud Republican criticism. Joe Biden's ruining our country. Jen Jordan, a state senator who turned a suburban district from red to blue and is now running for attorney general, knows that Democrats face headwinds. But she said Republicans have not offered a positive alternative. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, right? And so what people do is they respond to, you know, how are they feeling? How are their lives, right? And they're always going to tag the president for that. Um, but look, we have got a million miles to go before November. Back at the Beehive, where we first met Davis a year ago, she then urged people to give Biden time. Just be patient. Like, it's coming. Everything doesn't happen overnight. Folks know that. Now, she adds this caveat. Patient, but just frustrated. Just frustrated. Just would like to get the relief that we need so we can start operating how we used to. And since President Biden took office, Atlanta and the suburbs have recorded the second highest increase in inflation of any of the nation's largest metropolitan areas, second only to Phoenix. Of course, Arizona and here in Georgia, also home to two of the closely watched Democratic Senate races in the country, where incumbents are facing tough reelection battles in races driven, at least for now, by the economy. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Atlanta for us. Thank you so much. As President Biden marks Earth Day with a new executive order to try to protect forests, tinderbox conditions and looming wildfires out west prove years of climate change cannot be fixed by a simple stroke of a pen. That's next. Today is Earth Day. And in our Earth Matters series, President Joe Biden marked the day by signing a new executive order meant to protect America's forests. Executive orders are a positive step, but of course nowhere near enough to reverse climate change's dire effect on planet Earth. For the last two years, the hurricane season has been so active they ran out of letters in the alphabet used to name storms. The North Pole just recorded temperatures 50 degrees above normal, and at the South Pole it was 70 degrees higher than normal. The U.S. government estimates that damage from floods and fires and drought totaled $145 billion last year. The host of CNN's Wonder List and chief climate correspondent Bill Weir joins us now. Bill, the president's executive order 
comes as the fire season out west is starting. The season's gotten longer due to years of drought. Some parts of the country are facing an extremely critical fire threat today. Yeah, it's grim. Uh, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, the winds are howling. It's so tinder dry there. And this is just the result of this 22-year mega drought that is gripping uh, the West. And I think a lot of President Biden's greenest supporters love old growth forests and and are happy to see today's executive order. Uh, Those old growth, big old trees are the biggest and oldest carbon capture machines we have left on Earth until we invent something better. Uh, But it's probably not going to offset the other moves he made last week, which is opening up federal land to more drilling and fracking, even putting in a a use it or lose it clause, encouraging more drilling. Uh, That was disappointing to his green base. Also opening strategic oil reserves, encouraging allies, you know, to basically fight the Putin-Ukraine war to, you know, get through it with oil when it could have been a moment to you know, shift to something that is both safer for life as we know it and national security, something more renewable. But of course, he's also stymied by Joe Manchin in Congress uh, with Build Back Better and in the courts, probably in the Supreme Court, will we'll shoot down the EPA's right to regulate power plant emissions. Uh, so and also he didn't even mention climate really barely at the State of the Union. Uh, so it's a tough Earth Day for Joe Biden. Yeah, there he was with Jay Inslee. Uh, who got you know, bounced out as a one-issue candidate. And, and uh, one of the impacts of the rapidly warming planet, obviously, is melting glaciers, uh, which causes sea levels to rise. In Iceland, it's actually threatening the existence of fishing villages because there isn't enough water. So ex- explain that. It's, yeah, it's counterintuitive. So, you know, there's so much heavy ice on top of Iceland in Greenland. As it melts, the land rises. I saw this in Greenland as well. There are docking moors where you tie up your boat, these giant shipping cleats, 100 yards from the water because it's going up as the, as the waters go down. But, of course, all that water has to go somewhere, and it's rising in other parts of the world, like Charleston uh, and others. But uh, fascinating stuff at CNN.com today. Uh, my colleagues really did an amazing job telling this story about how all the myriad ways our changing planet is affecting people's lives day to day. You wrote uh, this letter to your two-year-old son for Earth Day. Uh, as you travel the planet, seeing firsthand the impact of climate change, what's your message to the younger generation uh, who's going to be inheriting this mess? Uh, it's, uh, I'm sorry, we're sorry. Uh, we're living through the results of so many unintended qu- consequences through human history, but there's so much hope, right? Elon Musk today released the first uh, round of seed money, million-dollar grants to 15 startups in his X Prize for carbon capture. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of natural systems that can capture these things, all kinds of alternative fuels that we haven't even begun to experiment with. Uh, so if you want hope these days as a young person, know that we haven't even started trying. And ultimately, this is just a political will story. It's, it's a few people in C-suites and the halls of power that are preventing uh, the big change. And that can change. Yeah. My message for, uh, for my kids is blame the boomers. Bill Weir, <laughs> thanks, thanks so much. Good to see hey, you. All right. Be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday. My colleague Dana Bash will talk to Democratic Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, Ukrainian-born Indiana Republican Congresswoman Victoria Spartz, and an exclusive with White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha. That's at 9 a.m. and noon on Sunday with Dana Bash on State of the Union. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the Tic Tac at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. 
If you ever miss an episode of the show, I like to remind you that you can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting right there, waiting for you to listen. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you Monday. <laughs>